just have to bring it back down to something that's manageable that we as as language teachers as ENL teachers know how to know how to plan for and, and know how to work with so focusing on reading writing speaking listening and what will help us to improve our students skills again as Gretchen said thinking of the learning how can we help our kids to develop in in those skills um, that is a way I think to strategically use asynchronous and synchronous instead of randomly Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can tried and true theories of learning help us navigate the uncertainties of online and hybrid learning models? How might backwards design help teachers spend more time providing support and feedback to students in remote environments? How might we strike the appropriate balance between synchronous and asynchronous learning when planning interpersonal, interpretive, and presentational communication activities? We discuss these questions and much more in our second conversation with Dr. Karen Gregory and Dr. Gretchen Oliver from Clarkson University in New York. We released our first interview in March 2020 as schools began closing as a result of the global pandemic. We are happy to bring Karen and Gretchen back to find out what they have learned since then and what they are planning as they prepare new and experienced teachers to work with English learners in a variety of learning environments. Dr. Gretchen Oliver and Dr. Karen Gregory, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. Thanks, Steve. It's so nice to be back. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Um, you know, we you kicked off this whole sort of look for the helpers campaign that we did back starting in March that ran through May as a result of the school closures. And, you know, when we chatted the first time, we, we really didn't know that this whole thing was going to happen. So it was really kind of great to have you on to talk about online learning for teachers of English learners, um, and then really talk about the acute issues that we were dealing with now. So we're going to get a little bit more specific now about back to school now that we kind of know um, where we are. Um, and in that conversation, what, what I loved about that conversation is, and we'll link to it if anybody um, hasn't heard it yet, is that we talked a lot about the affordances of online learning for, um, for English learners. But back then, that was kind of an optional affordance, right? We were, weren't really sure it was going to happen. So my first question is, now that most districts sort of don't have a choice, um, how has the game changed? Yeah, so as you said, Steve, um, when we first started this this whole thing, um, there was very little time for any kind of training for teachers and how to engage students for remote learning. And really the first priority for teachers, administrators, and staff was really to make sure that students and their families' basic needs were met. And that, you know, that includes health and safety to food and meals. Um, then they had to really assess what technology was available, and that included devices and internet access so that they could shift to that 100% remote instructional setting. And of course, we had that looming question of if and when anybody would return to school to the brick and mortar setting. So here we are now in this um, a, a similar situation where we, we know that there is a plan for some form of, of instruction, whether it be in-person, hybrid, or fully remote. Um, but what remains constant is that uncertainty, um, what's, what it's going to look like and maybe how long hybrid or in-person models will stay in place. So one of the things that Karen and I would like to encourage people to do is to 
try not to focus on that uncertainty and maybe take some time individually and collaboratively to reflect and re-examine the theories that guide their teaching practice. Um, I don't want to go all ivory tower here, but I, I just want to share some of the things that we just did. Um, we came off of our intensive summer program at Clarkson. And um, in the methods course that I co-teach with um, my colleague, Mary, we uh, did some work with the English Language Learners and New Standards uh, book by Margaret Heritage and her colleagues. And in that course, we, we really tried to reinforce this idea of pedagogical coherence. Um, and we, we started with an idea that came from uh, Julie Wellman's um, article from 2007, Are We on the Same Book and Page? The Value of a Shared Theory and Vision. And we encouraged our students to really think about starting with the why rather than the how and allow practice to grow from there. Um, so we looked at you know, some different second language acquisition theories, but we also looked at theories of learning theories of the learner and theories of teacher understanding. And we pushed our students who we have both novices and experienced teachers in our courses to think about the ways that they can bring coherence to their pedagogy and into their practice so that they're principled and they can avoid what, what is one of those traps of activity-based teaching. So this is something that we think that instructional leaders can be doing right now and in those very first days of of professional development of school um, to prepare teachers. So, you know, you, you wonder, well, why are we talking about this during a pandemic? Um, I think one of the points that Heritage and her colleagues um, highlight is that when we shifted to the common core, um, there was a real need for teachers to re-examine teaching principles and practices, and they describe different shifts in pedagogy. Uh, Karen and I really believe that this remote and hybrid instruction will also require a similar kind of reflection and, and pedagogical coherence. So my point here is that for teachers who are listening, um, you know, whether you're going to be in a face-to-face -face classroom or a hybrid model or a remote, you can you have to do things differently, but you can base what you do off of those same principles. Um, so, you know, Karen said back in March, um, you know, we, we want to think about what, what we believe is important for teaching and learning and, and stick to those principles. So pedagogy first, tool second. And so, you know, just to kind of wrap up this thought, I would encourage teachers and instructional leaders who are listening right now to, to think about using this time to think about the why and not get too caught up in the how just yet. Yeah, you know, that I think starting with the why is such a powerful piece because it is so easy to get caught up in all the uncertainty and to kind of say, I have to plan for three different scenarios. How am I going to do that? Um, you know, and, and one thing that, that I've been chatting with people about recently, and I, I you know, I, I guess I'm guilty of this too, is like people are talking about, well, there's no best practices. Like throw your best practices out the window, all the things that we've relied on. It's all changed. Um, but perhaps the best practice is starting with the why and thinking about what am I trying to accomplish, not about the tools that, you know, we need to use particularly to reach our English learners. And I think it's really hard to not sort of think about the acute day-to-day -day challenges. But as you said, now, uh, as we record this, might be the time to kind of really start to, to think about that. 
Yeah. So I would say, you know, if you think about like a second language acquisition um, theory or perspective that that uh, it's very Vygotskyan that second language acquisition occurs um, as a social pro process of this apprenticeship. Well, then that means that you have to have interaction. And if that's a principle that you believe in, as you're setting up your courses, whichever the model is, you need to plan for that interaction. And you just brought up planning, which is like, it's a great transition. That's like my second question. I mean, I've been a part of, I was a, a teacher for a long time in a traditional setting, uh, to high school Spanish, but then I was involved, um, in, in planning online courses, uh, one on family engagement, um, with Karen Mapp at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It was amazing to be a part of that. And one of the things that I learned is the amount of preparation like that needs to go into an online course. Preparation is everything. And you, you, uh, both and I have talked about this, um, you know, then the teacher's primary job or primary role is to provide feedback to students. Um, and that was obviously not the case in the spring. We had to build a plan as we, as we, as we flew it, which obviously caused a lot of problems and challenges. So I guess my question is what can teachers do to maximize instructional time, uh, monitoring student learning and providing feedback in a hybrid or remote setting, assuming that things have been kind of planned that they, the way that they need to be planned. Well, I think, as you just mentioned, it all comes back down, to, it comes down to uh, planning. And so the better we can plan in advance, the more feedback we'll be able, we'll be able to give. So as Gretchen was saying, when she was talking about having a principled approach and thinking, you know, relying on what we know about best practices of teaching, for us, one of the things we teach our students is backward design or understanding by design. And we should clarify, I'm sorry, when you say students, you're talking about your, because, yeah, Gretchen, you were saying this before, but I want to make sure people understand. Those are students who are either pre-service teachers or they've been teachers before and they're going back to take classes. Sorry, point of clarification. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an important point. So we're working with people who are becoming ENL teachers. Some of those people are current teachers and have been in the classroom for a long time and they're getting a new certification. And some of our graduate students are brand new to the field of education. Um, what's new for all of them is the field of TESOL, of learning how to teach English to English language learners. So one of the, the big foundational pieces for us is understanding by design. And even for many of the new teachers, this is maybe not new. They've, they've heard of it. They've seen it. But actually having to do it, they come away with an understanding of how um, helpful it is to start with the end in mind and how that can set you up for, for feedback. So if we start by identifying our big goals, you know, you might start as a teacher even thinking big enough, like what do I want out of this school year? What do I want my learners to be able to do at the end of this year? And then go backwards from there. What do I want them to do at the end of the semester, at the end of the unit? What do I want them to do by the end of the week? <laughs> you know, just kind of keep going, backtracking, backtracking, and then what's my evidence? that they've been able to do that. And if you can plan that way, then you can plan for your feedback also, because you'll know what you're looking for. You'll know that if I know what my assessment evidence is going to be, if I know I want my students to maybe in the first, um, the first weeks of school, maybe I want them to do this project and this is what I would like it to look like, then I know where I'm going and I, I can be really targeted with the feedback that I'm that I'm giving. So as you said, it really does come down to planning and um, 
hopefully teachers will have a little bit of time and be able to work together. I think the more that teachers can kind of divide and conquer and work together, um, that'll maximize the time they have and their creative energies so that once it all takes off, they do have time to work with students and conference and provide the feedback that definitely English learners need, but really all students need it. Yeah. And this goes back to what Gretchen was saying earlier about like that, you know, you can plan for this. Like there is a way to plan if you don't get hung up on all of the intricate details and issues that we're dealing with. Um, and, and, and this, that collaboration piece is important too. And I think that that's, I think we may have talked about this last time. There's an affordance here, like that folks are able to, I've talked to a lot of people that they're, that they say they're able to access PD more adequate to their needs, that they're able to collaborate with their teacher, with their colleagues more frequently um, and more flexibly than they were able to, bef- to before. So perhaps, you know, that's one of the affordances that we can, that we can talk about there. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is when I was teaching, I, I, I was teaching, I, I needed a way to, I taught uh, high school Spanish, as I said, and I taught AP Spanish um, literature, which when they told me I was going to teach that course, I was like halfway super excited and halfway just horrified because it's a lot of stuff and I wasn't an expert. And I was really, to me, and I taught students who were non-native speakers of, of, uh, of Spanish. They were English speakers learning Spanish in, in a high school setting. And I was trying to find a way that I could really try to get these students engaged in interacting, you know, and not just sort of me laying out, here's who the author is, here's the genre, here's what you're going to be looking for when you read at home. I knew they'd go home and like translate everything and they wouldn't really be able to get, you know, what, what I wanted them to get out of the course. So I experimented very early on with flipped classroom. That's kind of a long-winded way of saying that. Um, and I decided I'd make these videos and show all of the content in the videos that they could create. And they're very lo-fi. They could watch them over and over again. And then in class, we were able to engage in interactive activities. They could read on their own or read with someone else or act out plays or just have discussions. And I could be there monitoring their language ability, which I thought was, it worked out really, really well for me. So, you know, the biggest advantage of that was that I could provide them, them feedback. So what about this flipped learning thing? I mean, do you think it has a place for English learners in a remote, in a hybrid, or a face-to-face environment? I mean, I, to me, I had great success with it, but a lot of teachers were afraid about the, the preloaded work that it took, the planning, what we just talked about. But does it have a place here? I think it does, absolutely. Um, so as you said, you know, in the flipped classroom, the students are going to engage with the direct instruction, whether that's a lecture or some type of mini lesson. Um, independently. And then when they come together, there's the time and the space um, for interaction and practice and application. Um, I I truly believe, like you said, that teachers are poised to um, be able to uh, formatively assess student learning more effectively and and language development. And then, as we said, offer them feedback. Um, So I'd like to go back to one principles. And if if one of your principles that you're following is maybe uh, a gradual release of responsibility or uh, a gradual increase of student independence model, um, you need to say to yourself, okay, what's that going to look like? So it will look different than in a traditional classroom. Um, In in the case of, you know, giving them that that I do um, piece independently, it's going to require some self-regulation, but that's a, a great skill to teach kids and, and to reinforce with them. Um, so we, we really think that, that when we front load that, that the, the we do piece can be very powerful um, because there is this increased opportunity for the formative assessment. 
So we have a couple of ideas of what that might look like. So in a traditional face-to-face classroom, you would have the I do as the homework. And then that's watching your mini lesson or your lecture. And then the we do and the I do parts of the lesson can take place right in the classroom. So you have that monitoring and you have that adjustment that we teach whatever you might need to do. In a hybrid model, um, the I do, the independent learning could be taken at home. Um, So the students would watch the mini lecture, the, 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 um, the mini lesson at home. And then the we do would be part of the classroom time and the you do could take place in either setting. So they can either do it at home or right in the classroom as well. Um, in a remote setting, the I do piece would be best done in an in a asynchronous way so that when kids come together with their teachers um, for the, the synchronous part, that's when the we do piece would come in and then the you do could be either. So really, I think that the big point here is that um, when teachers are able to shift their focus from the teaching to the learning, they can get a better understanding of where, student, where students are and what else they might need. Um, I think an added benefit for ELLS with flip learning is that there's a record of the lecture or the mini lesson. And so they can do more with that comprehensible input that we're trying to get to them. Um, they can watch that recorded lesson. They can rewatch it. They can stop it. They can slow it down, take notes whenever they need to. And then they have this opportunity to really engage with it where, where they need to and in yeah. ways that they need to. Yeah. A couple things there. The first thing that I was smiling because, um, I have the, I, I hosted these all on YouTube at one point before we had like Edmodo and then Google classroom. Cause I just, those things didn't exist. And so at that time I put them on YouTube and it's funny, these have to be now, I don't know, eight, nine years old, maybe 10 years old. Some of these videos on like Don Quixote or whatever, like the romances from Spain. And I still people like watching them. It's it's I mean, it's not it's not viral by any means. I'm not in any way like a YouTube star. I'm far from it. But it's just funny to see like I'll get an email notification. So and so has watched your video. And once in a while, they'll put comments down. And so that tells me that people, you know, they can go back and use it, not just students. But then if you make them public for everybody, you know, you're just you're just, I guess, uh, contributing to the to the collective knowledge of of everyone. But yeah, my students you know, it was an AP course. So they needed to review everything and they had everything reviewed. Um, what I learned over time, and maybe this is a tip for folks who are trying to do this now is, you know, try to make them as evergreen as possible. If you plan on reusing them, try not to add dates and things, unless you want them to be for that specific acute purpose, you know, but I eventually tried to make them, uh, as evergreen as possible. Um, so that's really interesting. The other, you know, a couple other things that you said, I wanted to highlight, you know, the shift focus from, from teaching to learning. I mean, I think that's like, a very, very, very wise word. That's something you really need to, I, people think people really need to think about is looking at it through the lens um, of the learner. You also mentioned asynchronous and synchronous terms, which we're all becoming sort of anybody who didn't know what those are now are pretty, uh, you know, well-versed in those. And I want to get into that because we all know that, I mean, I know as a parent, you know, like watching my eight-year-old trying to be in a synchronous you know, meeting with his teacher, his poor teacher, who I love and who is a friend of ours trying to like, you know, wrangle these, these eight-year-olds in a second grade classroom can be difficult and be difficult to engage them. Um, and so, you know, that, that makes it really difficult for, for teachers. So how, especially, especially for English learners, I mean, how can teachers, um, go about sort of figuring out what the secret sauce is for the recipe between 
asynchronous learning and synchronous learning? So I think it it all is going to come back to, again, thinking about what we know about how to teach language and how languages are learned. So if we think about, say, the um, modes of communication, interpersonal, interpretive, and presentational communication, if we focus on those and we think about Okay, so what I want my students to have some interpersonal to develop their interpersonal communication skills. So that's probably synchronous. That'll probably take place in a synchronous setting where you teach the teacher and the students can talk. You can try to have some student to student talk, um, but you're thinking about ways where you can develop their speaking and listening skills um, in a in a live setting. But then if you think of interpretive communication that is probably best or um, it can take place in an asynchronous setting where students can read or listen or view something and interpret it at their own speed, at their, um, at their own pace and um, communicate their understanding, how they've interpreted whatever you're having them read or listen or watch. And then for presentational communication, that can probably be both. It could probably be a combination and that is a chance for students to collaborate with one another. So they can work on those interpersonal skills. You can send them off to work on a Google slide project maybe. And then they have to come back and present it to the class. Maybe they need to put together a flip grid, come back and present it to the class. So I think in, in taking a step back and looking at things again from this principled approach of what we know and then plugging in the tools that might make sense. It, it's a way to, I think, kind of manage the chaos and manage the overwhelming amount of um, information that's out there and tools that are out there. We just have to bring it back down to something that's manageable that we as, as language teachers, as ENL teachers, know how to, know how to plan for and, and know how to work with. So focusing on reading, writing, speaking, listening, and what will help us to improve our students' skills. Again, as Gretchen said, thinking of the learning, how can we help our kids to develop in, in those skills? Um, that is a way I think to strategically use asynchronous and synchronous instead of randomly. Because I think what, what we keep going back to is that there is a really strong tendency to base our teaching on activities and things yeah. that are yeah. fun or cool or whatever. And I, it's really tempting to do that but I think it kind of can add to the stress and the chaos and stepping back and thinking about things from more of a global <laughs> perspective can help us to sort of manage that a little better. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. I think you did a really good job breaking down like how you, how you might be able to kind of structure these while also allowing for some flexibility. And I'll just pull one point out of there that I thought was really important. And that I think people have a tendency not to really think about, although I've heard more of it lately, which is good. And that is that when you're working on something presentational, which traditionally, I guess, you'd, you know, you could do asynchronously. And we always think of that one student has gotten the information and they're going to asynchronously do this, just like a homework assignment, right? They're going to fill out this paper by themselves. Maybe their parents are there to help. Maybe they call a friend if they need to, but most of the time it's just them. But for English learners and for folks who are learning language or just want to increase their collaboration skills, there's no reason why you can't say, hey, work with, uh, you know, uh, uh, either create your own groups or have students work with partners and say, you're more than welcome to collaborate on this. 
And then you're, you're doing two things. You're allowing for that presentational, um, but you're also getting the students to collaborate with one another uh, and therefore speak sort of in an interactive way, interpersonal way, I should say. Um, and, and still doing that presentational, you're doing all that asynchronously. So, so that I guess the interpersonal communication doesn't always have to happen in a synchronous environment. Mm -hmm. Right. You can just, I think, trust that it's happening. Trust is a key word. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a hard, hard piece for teachers to to trust that if you send students off into maybe a breakout room, that they're going to do what you ask them to do. But I think we, we have to try. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, and it's, I'm seeing those conversations quite frequently about accountability and, what do I do? Like, is this, I, I don't know what they're doing in there and there could be, and it's all valid. It's all totally valid. And I think that comes down to also like leadership of the school, like having an understanding and giving teachers grace and knowing that some things might go wrong, but it's, it's, it's tricky for sure. And that, you know, you gotta, that trust is kind of sometimes hard to, uh, hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there is definitely, um, you know, a big part of the school year the new school year, I should say, is all about establishing relationships um, and nurturing them and st- with students and their families. And that's like crucially important for vulnerable students like English learners and others. Um, and that can be really challenging in online and blended models, particularly if you've never done it before. So what are some ways that we can go about helping to build relationships and keep our fingers on the pulse of sort of the social emotional needs of these students? So my first bit of advice I would say is just to connect with students and and their families as soon as possible. Um, Do an online parent orientation or virtual open house um, so that you can review those schedules and expectations and and give parents a sense of of what it's going to look like and how they can help. Um, When I was teaching French, um, you know, open house, I would like the parents would come in and say, well, I can't help my kid at home. I don't know French. And I would say, well, you could ask your child to teach you something or ask them about the, the index cards where they're working with new vocabulary. So it, it's just giving parents um, an, an idea of what they can expect. Um, so you want to, regardless of the age of, of, your, of your students, you want to show parents that they are partners in this learning experience and that you welcome their participation in, in their child's learning. Um, my son's science teacher was amazing this past year. She she emailed us at least once a week and kind of shared what she was seeing with the kids. And she would talk to us about her instructional decisions based on what she was seeing and how things were going to switch up. And I so appreciated that because I felt like I wasn't in the dark and harping on my son about, well, why are you doing this so differently now? It wasn't like this a month ago. Um, so, you know, it, it's very important to do that. Um, the other thing I would suggest too is, is as you connect with parents, give them a way to communicate with you. Um, maybe email isn't the, the best way or the easiest way for them to email or to touch base with you. So um, pro, uh, apps like WhatsApp or talking points for messaging, if you don't want to give out your phone number, I understand that you can set up a, a Google Voice account and um, that would, you know, allow parents to reach out to you over the phone or with voicemail capabilities. Um, and, and especially for our English language learner families, that that oral communication is really important. 
the real life dog barking in the background <laughs> first time on highest aspirations so thank you Ryder, for that um but to your point there are a lot of of tools that are available um for for uh, folks to use and I, I you know i've seen people go back to like the mail to communicate with people or a phone but just giving people the choice and establishing those relationships early and letting folks know that hey like whatever way you want to communicate whatever way you want to do it um, you know, we're willing to to work with you on that. Yeah, that that community piece with with both families, but also with students, is so important um, in in times like these. And if we want to, you know, establish that trust with our students, it doesn't just happen overnight. You do have to build those relationships, and you have to create that classroom community and establish norms. They don't have to be formal, but you know communicate with your students with what your expectations are. And I would even argue, ask them what their expectations are. Give yeah. them a voice. Yeah. Giving them a voice also crucial, you know, and, and there are, again, I think feel like it goes back to just start with a why, you know, and figure out how you're going to don't, don't get so bogged down with on. There's some affordances to, to, to online learning that, that we need to kind of think about and not get trapped in that cycle of like just self-destruction that this is all going to be, <laughs> you know, how am I going to do this again? Um, which I, which I get, you know, it can be, it can be difficult. The other thing that I wanted to, to, to ask you, you to about is, um, you know, I, I feel like we've talked on this podcast a lot about co-teaching and co-planning. Um, and there are, I feel like just evangelists out there who are so excited about it and who do it all the time and who try to always get the word out that this is something that we need to be doing. And here are some strategies, but there are others who just either aren't on board because of their own, you know, they like to be in the classroom alone um, or because their school just doesn't offer that kind of model. But I think there's definitely a renewed interest in this now. We've already talked a little bit about collaboration. Um, so speaking of challenges and affordances, I'm curious, I want to know what are in this online learning environment or a hybrid learning environment, what are the challenges and affordances of co-teaching and co-planning, particularly for uh, English learners as we move forward? So I think in terms of the challenges of co-teaching and co-planning, they are pretty much the same as they are in face-to-face settings. So there's the challenge of lack of time, lack of um, maybe time for planning, but also time to get to know your co-teacher. So much of it depends on that um, relationship that you have as just two human beings. If, if you have never worked together before and you don't know each other, it's going to be hard to get to know each other and probably harder in a remote setting. Um, some of the some of the affordances, though, I think, are that the um, the collaboration piece might be might be assisted with technology. You know, the idea of the idea of sharing a lesson plan and the ENL teacher, as we say in New York, ENL, <laughs> ESL, alphabet teacher, soup. Yeah. Everywhere is different. Yeah. Having the opportunity to look something over and figure out, you know, how to make modifications for the different language proficiency levels that might be in that classroom or different scaffolds that might help students um, to understand the lesson or be able to participate. So those can sometimes be, be easier with technology because you do actually, you need to email those things back and forth and or share through you know, a shared drive or however, however you do that. Um, I think there are models of co-teaching that might work especially well in these remote settings. So if you think about, well, one of the things um, 
that's one of the things that's happening in lots of places is that they're trying to reduce class sizes. If they are bringing students in, they're trying to reduce class sizes and then maybe doing like a hybrid every other day kind of model. So if they're doing that, then that's a good opportunity to use a co-teaching team as, you know, two groups teaching the same content or, right. or switching it up. So there are, there are models, I think, of co-teaching that can work really well in this environment. Um, I think because the planning for online teaching is so heavy, that's another affordance of co-teaching that you have two teachers to kind of do that work. So to divide and conquer and say, I'm going to do this part, you do that part and really, really do that. In the past, I think in face-to-face traditional classrooms, you've got a classroom teacher who's done things the same way for many, many years right? may not be willing to switch it up. But now this is all new. So this is, it can be a really great opportunity for the ESL, ENL teacher to really jump in take a hold of some things and, um, and in that way, I think provide some professional development. to It's like, this is how, this is what we need to do for our English learners so they can access this content and participate. Yeah. To me that the planning piece is like that. That's what I, what I was thinking when I just asked the question, I mean, just to be able to have the ability to plan something uh, and, and this is really for all teachers. I mean, if you're in a science department and you're planning an online unit, you know, you can plan it together and you can execute it differently, right? Different teachers have different styles, different strengths and weaknesses that they bring to the table. It doesn't mean that everybody has to do it the same way. But the planning really, I think this is uniquely uh, um, uh, effective in, in, in terms of trying to get uh, teachers to co-plan together. Co-teaching, a little bit different, but co-planning for sure. Um, so we've talked, we've talked a lot about sort of the planning, we've talked about the why, but I do, I do feel like it's important to get into some like specifics. So I want to put you both in the spot and just ask, what do you think the top three like tools are that teachers with EL should consider um, using to create these high quality interactive learning environments? You mentioned, I have heard Flipgrid. I think I heard a, a, like Google presentations. Um, and, and, you know, how, how would those look in a fully remote situation? How would they look in a hybrid situation? How would they work in a face-to-face situation? I know it's kind of hard to quantify, but I, I, want to do, I don't want to do the fall down the trap of saying, here's a list of all the tools you can use. Good luck. Like, which ones for what we've talked about have, you think will be effective? I think the number one thing would be some type of screencasting tool. Um, in, in the big affordance of this is it, it makes learning multimodal with visuals, with voice, with with um, uh, video. In face-to-face settings, um, students can watch lectures or mini lessons on their own. They can slow it down. They can replay it. Um, in remote settings, they can take as much time as they need with it. Um, we use VoiceThread as our, our, our tool and for us, we, we really like it because not only do we are we able to add audio, video, text, but our students can also comment on it, and it provides an opportunity for um, multimodal interaction with our lectures. Um, but again, there are a lot of different screencasting tools that are out there. Yeah, many of them now. Yeah, uh, another one that um, our our mentor teachers, especially at the elementary level, have worked with our students our students on is um, Seesaw. 
Yep. Um, they use it to, you know, communicate with families, share work. Um, students can produce multimodal projects. Um, I had a, a student last year, a master's degree student, who did a research project around the use of Seesaw to um, help students develop their oral language in face-to-face settings. And she found that it, it really did um, give opportunities for oral language development that without the technology, they wouldn't have had. Um, so it, it's not just for online. It's, it can be used in face-to-face settings. And then the third thing that I referenced earlier is, is Google Voice, um, certainly for communication with parents, but it can also be used um, as an assessment tool, as your exit ticket for kids. So mm. you have you have your account, you um, give them the number, they can call it in, there's a prompt for them to listen to and respond to, and it, it does give you that... Um, that eye on to whether or not they they understood they got the concept and where they are with their language and in their oral language in ways that maybe um, we couldn't capture with um, a written exit ticket, for example. Yeah, so you've just offered us three sort of categories of tools and three specific tools. So just to review, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you got a screencasting tool. That's the ability for you to create, well, not interactive, but multimodal presentations. There's lots of them out there. I'll just throw out there's Screencastify, there's Screencast-O-Matic, there's there's ScreenFlow. There's a whole bunch of them that start with the word screen. You mentioned um, VoiceThread. Uh, there's Seesaw, which is a great communication tool of parents. I've seen that on the other end as a parent when one of my kids was in kindergarten. Um, the teacher was using that. and It was great to see what was going on inside the classroom. Obviously, if you're not inside the classroom, it might look different now, but this is a great communication tool. And then Google Voice. I just think that's a great tool. I used it actually years ago, uh, again, for foreign language students to sort of leave me messages. And you knew you put a prompt in there and you knew exactly whether they understood it or not. And they'll just respond right away. They can take some time to kind of process it, figure out what they're going to say. So that's a tool that's more for um, communication, but also formative assessment with students, particularly with their, with their speaking. So those are great. And I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't just give the tools, but also the categories because people are going to choose different ones. And I just get so overwhelmed and I'm so tired of giant lists of tools like that. It just, it just doesn't work. And I think we've, we've learned that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm guilty of it. I've done it before. Um, but I, I feel like hopefully I've learned my lesson. So a couple more questions that I, you know, last time we talked, we, we talked a lot uh, and we sort of preface what we were saying with, um, you know, the fact that you all work with graduate students in a 100% online teacher preparation program. That's, what was interesting to me about both of you before COVID even happened, and we, you know, you, we got together and, and chatted, um, how well do you think they're prepared to take on some of these challenges, the students that you have? Um, and what can we do to help others who don't have that kind of experience? I imagine these students must be like, at the timing of this, I mean, it's a horrible thing, and, but they must be, I mean, 10 years from now, they, they, they're going to be leaders in this whole thing, I would imagine. Well, I hope so. <laughs> that would be great. We, that's what we hope for them. But I would say at the very least, they're not scared of it. And yeah. I think a lot of other teachers do have a lot of fear. And uh, the fear of the unknown is can be, I think, a little paralyzing for, for people. And rightly so. You know, it, it's, a, it's a totally daunting task for people who have been doing something well in a certain way for many years to now have to flip that on its head. So I think at, at least our students aren't fearful and that they are optimistic and they can, I think, share that optimism with their colleagues in their schools. Um, I think that schools are that kind of optimism can be contagious. So if you have a few people who are excited about it and who can kind of calm nerves and um, offer their help, 
I think that can can go a long way in creating a, a good culture and a good climate instead of definitely. Um, we have a really collaborative program. I think in everything we do, we try to model collaboration. So we hope that our graduate students would um, be the the um, types of colleagues that will share what they know and be excited to lead professional development. Um, we had some graduate students this summer who just sort of by, well, I guess not by chance, you know, it's the way things are. There were in our area, some um, online summer schools. And so we used that as their field experience. So they were able to um, do a student teaching placement in an online summer school. And I think that was really, really beneficial for them to um, have that experience of being with a mentor teacher and collaborating with all those people and kind of seeing for themselves what is challenging and what is possible. And they all came away. I, it seemed to me, they all came away feeling really positive about it and much, much less afraid than, um, than they would have been otherwise. So I, um, I, I hope that they are, are, they offer positivity and optimism to the whole situation. And those two things are not underrated. Three things, lack of fear, optimism, and positivity right now. Like you need people who are fearless, willing to take risks because they've done it before. Optimism is contagious, even if it's in a virtual environment. And positivity obviously is good for everything. So, I mean, it's good you have, I mean, it's just, it's just so interesting to me that, that how we, you know, we connected right before this happened and sort of connecting with you both throughout this process and thinking, I think often about those students who are, who are going to be teaching and who are going to be leading in these kinds of environments. And it's just, um, must be really rewarding for both of you. So what is keeping you energized and inspired throughout this whole thing? I mean, what are you doing? You're, you're like in a position where you have to, part of your job is to make sure that these students are not only prepared, but motivated and excited about teaching. And you need to get that from somewhere. So what are you doing to keep yourselves inspired and energized? Well, we just had our summer intensive program and it, it was a lot. Um, but I think seeing the growth, um, not just in, in content and pedagogical knowledge among our students, but the way that they came together as a community and supported one another, that was very energizing for me. Um, kind of to flip the other end of the spectrum here um, to keep myself going I really tried on the weekends as much as I could um, to carve out time for me and my family. Um, I have two boys, teenage boys, and normally every weekend we're either at a basketball tournament or on a baseball field. And with those things not being possible, um, it did, has allowed us to really kind of spend some quality time um, by the pool or wherever together and just really take a chance to slow down and look at you know, what's important to us and, and to look at this time as a gift. Um, I started a garden and I'm that seems to be pretty popular. Yeah. <laughs> lots of great tomatoes and, and, um, and cucumbers and other zucchini and other, other vegetables. So, um, that that's also been some, one of those things that's kind of kept me going through this. Good. Yeah. I can relate to that. I've always had a garden, but my garden this year is more like a farm, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing. How about you, Karen? So I would say, um, similarly, I would say that our graduate students are really what inspire me and, um, and keep me going. They are a, 
I think this summer, as I said, a lot of them did this student teaching placement and they came away with just so much um, enthusiasm. You know, they were, they're excited about this challenge. They said one of the things that I thought was really great was that they enjoyed being in students' homes, that because it was online, they said, you know, like the moms and the dads and the little brothers and sisters, everybody joined in yeah. and they loved that. They loved Dogs. that. They, yeah, everybody, right. <laughs> and vice versa, that their own kids would often climb onto their laps while they were teaching a lesson or, you know, like if they were singing a song to a group of kindergarten English learners, their kids would join in. So <laughs> that, you know, that the, hearing those stories that they told us of their successes and the things that they surprised them and made them so happy they went into this field is really inspiring. And um, it definitely keeps you going. Um, I would say, in addition to all those things that Gretchen said, you know, spending time with kids and everything, one thing that's been important for me also is really stepping away because we teach online and we spend so much time in front of a screen. For me, it's been really important to just turn it off <laughs> and you know, get away from social media and get away from, just get away from computer screens and, um, and, and really be conscious of it and say like, okay, I'm turning this off and I am not going to be in front of a screen for the, you know, tomorrow, yeah, <laughs> Saturday, say, I think um, there, it, it can be very overwhelming and it can feel like, you know, the work is always calling you, the work is never done. So you have to just kind of make some, um, make some boundaries for yourself. I think that's something Gretchen and I mostly work from home because we teach online. And I, it's something I've heard a lot of people say about, about working from home that you have to, it can be 24 seven if you let it be. So mm -hmm. you have to um, create some sort of work-life balance schedule. Yeah, Karen, I would say that um, one of the terms that I've heard is that I am now living at work and yeah. <laughs> I feel that at times too. It's great advice, and I, you know, I, I'm guilty of uh, of not following it at times. And you know, you you really, really have to do it because it can be it can be totally overwhelming. It's always there, you know. And we we're in it for the right reasons, but um, at the end of the day, you do have to take care of yourself if you're going to take care of others. So, thanks for that. That's a question that I've try been trying to ask folks as we uh, as we approach the new school year. I think it's important that people get some ideas of what others. Um, are doing. So last question, we, we covered this last time, but I want to make sure that anybody who's listening to this one and didn't listen to la the last one um, has this information. How can people learn more about the work that you're doing or reach out to you um, or get in contact with you? So um, we, it, I think the, the easiest way is to find us at Clarkson University. If you look online, if you go online um, and search Clarkson University TESOL, you will see um, our contact information there. We are just um, kgregory at clarkson.edu and goliver at clarkson.edu. We're both on Twitter, but not a lot <laughs> for myself because I have to step away, as I yeah. said, from time to time. But we're there, so you can find us there too. Great. Well, it was really great to speak with you the first time in March, and it was nice to catch up again now as we approach the new school year and people are really thinking about this appreciate your expertise, the work you're doing, and the, clearly the passion that you have for the students that are going to be going in the field and hopefully doing uh, great things that will then trickle down to the, the kids we care most about, who are the kids that are really bearing the brunt of this challenge and um, hoping that we can find a nice middle ground and be able to uh, continue doing what we're doing by starting with the why, which is how we started. And I think it's a great way to end this conversation. So thank you both for taking the time again. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you so much for the opportunity. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.